a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Buried on page 46 of the New York Times' September 27, 1981 Sunday issue is perhaps the most remarkable case I've never heard of. It took eight years to make sense of the facts of this case. The author describes it as one of the strangest and most perplexing stories in the annals of American crime. And yet, despite that, they gave it the predictable title, The Case of the Lady and the Killer. But this case is anything but predictable. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Well, you could argue that this story begins in 1953, when the killer first realized he had a knack for criminal enterprise. Or, you know, you could also say it begins in 1966 when a police officer in Chicago gets shot in the head during a routine traffic stop. But no, 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 no. We're going to begin this story in February of 1973 with the five-foot, waif-like mother of three named Hope Masters. Hope Masters and her soon-to-be fiancé, Bill Ashlock, yes, they're getting serious. And part of getting serious is she wants to take him to a vacation spot. Her family owns a ranch house up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So they go up there, and they're both divorcees at this point. They're still going through the process of getting out of their previous marriages. But that sort of just brings them together even more and makes them want to talk about this future where they get to be married to each other. Yeah, and they sit by the fire and they talk about this, right? It sounds so romantic. They talk about their past and their planning for their future and how they're going to combine their families once the divorces are finalized and they can marry. Yeah, during that conversation, Hope even says, let's keep it real when we get old together. Let's not dye our hair. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you know, that's and that's sweet. true love. If When I get married, that will be in my vows, actually. Bill, meanwhile, even though this conversation is happening, he has sort of earned himself this reputation as a bachelor in L.A. <laughs> Which and- I love. I love that he's like a most <laughs> eligible bachelor, but it's like, I do want to get married right away. Well, I don't know if this L.A. Times reporter knows about Hope yet. But he has asked Bill, can I interview you for a story I'm doing about the 10 most eligible bachelors? And Bill's kind of like, ooh, let me ask Hope. Awkward. But she says, no, it's totally fine with me and kind of gets a kick out of it, too. So the reporter has already chatted with Bill and got some information and now wants to go meet him up at this ranch to get some great photo ops of Bill down by the river nearby. I mean, what a beautiful backdrop. So the reporter arrives the next day, and he walks in, and he's dressed in a red turtleneck, and it's under a white button-up and then a leather jacket, like peak 70s, you know, real cute. And in addition, if that wasn't cool enough, he also shows up with a carved pipe in his hand. And Bill introduces this journalist as Taylor Wright. In addition to having great style, he's tall, handsome, and well-tanned. Yeah, Hope's like, Ooh, He's tall, you're dark, tan. and handsome. Yeah, she notices right away. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've been skiing recently. And he's kind of just a cool guy. He sits in this rocking chair with Bill across from him on the couch. And they have a more get-to-know-each-other conversation because he's already done sort of the formal interview. So at this point, they're having wine and cheese. And Hope is talking a mile a minute. That's kind of her style. She's a chatty Kathy, but she's also asking questions. And among those questions, she wants to know, hey... Why'd you pick Bill for this? Now, keep in mind, Bill is in the room with them, okay? So Taylor locks eyes with Hope, and he says, well, he drives a sports car, and he has a pilot's license, and he dates attractive women. Ooh, fireworks! Shoot your shot, Taylor. (laughs) Uh, That afternoon, the three of them have such a good time. They go down to the river together. Um, Hope slips at one point on the grass and Taylor catches her around the waist. And then she watches him do a few pictures of Bill. And on their way back up to the house, Taylor holds Hope's hand in case she falls again on the slippery grass. This is so 
dang romantic. Who's the most eligible bachelor, Taylor or Bill? I can't decide. I know. And then the three of them, like it's a Camp Sierra Nevada, they (laughs) go to some nearby orange trees and pick oranges to make some screwdrivers together. Sounds pretty fun. It sounds like the most eligible bachelorette in this situation is actually Hope. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> totally. Like, God, I gotta be honest, sounds lovely. But by that evening, Hope, filled with screwdrivers, wine, and the charcuterie tray that she's prepared, is dizzy and tired. So she's had too much wine, but also hot tip. She's also had some painkillers because her back is injured. So she needs to lie down, but only for a nap. I mean, the conversation seems fun. She really doesn't want to miss out. She's got some FOMO. So she tells Bill to wake her up when the reporter is gone, and she ends up drifting into a deep sleep. Painkiller, wine, and screwdrivers be damned. She does wake up when she feels something cold and metal pressed against her cheek. She opens her eyes. It's now dark out. The room's pitch black, and she can kind of see the silhouette of someone looming over her with a gun. She rolls over, jumps out of bed, and screams for Bill to come and help her. But Bill isn't coming, so she runs over to Bill and she sees Bill is still lounging by the fire where she last remembered leaving him. His feet are still up on the table. He is holding a glass in his hand and she runs up to him to shake him awake from his sleep and his head wobbles loosely back and forth. Yeah, at first she must think he's drugged or something, but then that voice of that looming presence, she hears behind her and he says, don't bother with him. He's dead. And he grabs Hope's hands and thrusts them close to the fire so that they're illuminated in the light. And she sees that they are covered in red. See all the blood, he says. She registers the blood covering her hands and she immediately feels sick. She runs to the bathroom to vomit. But the man follows her and tears at her clothes from behind her. He then pulls her into the bedroom and he rapes her. He says, I don't need a gun to kill you. I could break your neck with one hand. When he's done, Hope lies there in shock, and she can hear him ripping long strips of tape. And he restrains her hands and feet behind her back and tells her, I can't leave you alive. You could identify me. But he doesn't kill her in that moment. Instead, He leans down to rub his cheek on hers, and he just whispers, I love you. Oh, terrifying. It's so sick and twisted and scary. The door to this room closes. Hope is now alone in the dark, tied up on this bed. She lies there in silence and thinks to herself, if I am going to make it out of this thing alive, I'm going to do whatever that man tells me. Hope lies there hogtied in the darkness, thinking to herself, is this a hallucination? Is this a nightmare? Bill can't be dead. I was just with him. There can't be a maniac with a gun planning to kill me. And then she senses that he's in the room with her again. And she feels that the presence is calm. It's not violent like it was before. So Hope feels, I guess, empowered to ask a question like, is Bill really dead? Please tell me he isn't dead. And this smooth, calm voice replies, I've seen him and he is dead because he was with you. Someone wants you dead. And at this point, he explains to her that he's the member of a criminal enterprise known only as the organization. Hope's soon-to-be ex-husband that she's in the process of getting divorced from, Tom Masters, hired him to kill Hope and her two oldest children. She has three kids, but her youngest is a child she has with Tom Masters, so of course he's not part of the hit. This murder was supposed to look like the Manson murders, just a senseless massacre that, in the end, would have given Tom a hefty life insurance payout. And as soon as he brings her kids into it, at this point, Hope is going to do everything to protect her and them. So she pleads with this guy, I have to get home to the children. 
but he won't let her leave. He says, you have to understand, in a contract killing, there's no such thing as a witness left alive. And his tone seems oddly reasonable. Like, everything he is saying is making sense to her in this moment, but she begs him again, and she promises to not identify him, that she would never. She's literally saying anything she can so that she can make it out alive and go and save her children. And while she explains this, her attacker does take a moment to consider it. And he says to her, I don't know if I can trust you. And she assures him, you absolutely can. I would never identify you. She doesn't even know who he is, she says. It's too dark for her to even see. Somehow, this works. And he decides in that moment that just for now, he's not going to kill her. He ends up ripping the tape off of her wrists and ankles, and then he takes a picture of her with the flash bulb camera. And he says, if you identify me, then the organization will have your picture and you and your children will be killed. As he's standing in the doorway, silhouetted by the fire, she realizes that she recognizes him. In this moment, it all just hits her suddenly. The man who killed her lover, raped her, and who is now holding her captive is Taylor Wright, the reporter. So Hope has decided that in order to survive and to get back to her children, she has to just play along. And so even though she recognizes him as Taylor Wright, she never brings up the name again. She doesn't describe how changed he is or anything about the situation. Because the night before, he was so chivalrous, right? He was saving her when she slipped on the hill. He was holding her hand as she walked up. They were making screwdrivers together. And then he turns into this monster. But now, in this moment, it's like he... He's gone back to the way he was before. He's charming and he's nice. And she wants to keep it that way. And she even tries to make him laugh. Yeah, she asks him, she says, well, can the condemned person have a last cigarette? He tells her, no, it's bad for you. And look, I know, (laughs) come on, I know what you're thinking. A few minutes ago, this guy's going to kill her. And now he's super worried about her health. (laughs) Choose a lane, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what Hope is thinking. Like, he cares about my health? And it's like this light bulb goes off in his head. And he says, gee, I guess I am. Yeah. What the hell is going on? Like, (laughs) it's all over the place. Totally. He does not know. You just killed a man and you're like, no, 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 no. But smoking kills. Smoking's the real killer here. Not me, who just murdered Bill. Men don't kill, cigarettes kill. (laughs) And that is the ad. Maybe it's selfishness uh, opposed to chivalry. Either way, Hope's not going to quibble with this. She has just been given sort of a second chance at life here. So she's going to do what she does best, which is chatty Kathy. She's going to start talking to him about anything and everything. So she tells Taylor all about her philosophy on life and death. She tells him about her kids, maybe hopefully to protect them the more he knows about them. She tells him about her money problems. Literally, she tells Taylor anything that's going to take his mind off killing her. She has been described as a compulsive talker, and I just have to tell you, it really seems to be working for her. It's almost like a superpower. Yeah, I mean, it is a smart tactic. It does sort of humanize you to this totally. uh, potential danger, right? And he, he does actually seem interested while she's talking. He's not like, all right, that'll do. He's listening, you know, and he's he's talking back. He's telling Hope about his own philosophy. He tells her, if you ever want to learn more about me, read The Day of the Jackal, he says. I'm the jackal. I haven't read this book, but um, I think it, first of all, it does look promising that maybe Hope is going to see a long enough lifetime to go to the library and get a book and read it, is what he sees in her future. Um, But men that murder and rape and then say that they're like a character from a cool book, that really sicks me out. Get a job, man. Yes, all of that. And in addition, he also mentions that he actually has a specific code of ethics. He says that he would never kill children or a mother, especially when they have so little money. So I guess her telling him that she has no money and all these kids. But 
didn't he know that she had kids? It's very confusing to me. But he's going to have to think a little bit more on it because I guess his code of ethics aren't like black and white, like don't kill, kill. It's a little bit like a gray area. And then he crawls into bed with her and lies on top of her. And remember, she's tiny, incredibly small, and the weight of his body crushes down on her. And the shock of the predicament that she is in begins to fade and a wave of relief washes over her as she slowly blacks out and loses consciousness. Hope wakes up and it's now dawn. The light is streaming through the windows and she starts to wake up and so does Taylor. He smiles at her and goes in for a kiss as though they're just, I don't know, longtime lovers on vacation at her family's ranch. It's as though he were Bill Ashlock, who is, by the way, still dead in the next room. And it does not put Hope in the proverbial mood. She pulls away from this kiss, but remember, she's a little scared of how he's going to react if he feels rejected. So she quickly kind of laughs it off and says, oh, I haven't brushed my teeth yet. And he laughs too. So then he goes to take a shower. He knows he can't leave her on her own. She might escape. So he forces her to sit on the bathroom floor while he showers. And while he's showering, he leaves his gun unattended on the windowsill. And at that moment, Hope sees the gun and she makes this calculation. She realizes at this point, her loyalty is being tested. And if she were to take that gun, any sort of like loyalty that she's built up until now would be vanished and she'd have to start from scratch or maybe he would just kill her. Or if she were to grab the gun and it works, she doesn't know how to shoot a gun. She doesn't know how to work it. So she just has to let this gun sit there and sit while he takes a shower. And so she's really just stuck in this nightmare, which is getting more surreal by the minute. Taylor tells her that he loves her, that he's going to go make her breakfast, and that then they're going to go up into the mountains to take some pictures. It does not sound promising. Up into the mountains alone together, I think Hope is pretty concerned that this is a plan to go up to the mountains and kill her. So she's pretty anxious, but he's not exactly taking suggestions right now on how they should spend the day. So she doesn't have any choice but to play along and hope she's wrong. Listen, it's the 70s, too. There's no Instagram. No one's, like, doing influencer content on mountains just yet. What's this guy going to do? Create a slideshow of, like, me and my victim (laughs) at the scene of the crime. It just is very confusing. So Hope is there, and in order to get out of the house, she has to pass through the living room. And currently in their living room is Bill's body. And that's just too much for Hope. She's, She's refusing to go through there. And Taylor seems to understand this. So he moves the body to the back bedroom where she can't see it. And then the two of them discuss what they should do with the body. And Taylor has this idea where he can burn down the ranch along with the body, destroy the evidence, Mm. and then he could kill um, Tom Masters, her soon-to-be ex-husband, who apparently hired this hit on her so that she could collect Social Security benefits. And All this while, it's like, is he setting up a life for them together? And then to put a little cherry on the top of this creepy ball Sunday, he says that he's going to buy Hope this white lace dress that she really wants. Oh, right. Because that was a dress that she had told him Bill was going to buy for her. And now that Bill's out of the picture, he steps in and he's like, hey, I can be the guy to buy you this dress. But by the way, if you rat me out, you and your children are going to be killed. But by the way, what size do you wear? It's a f- roller coaster. <laughs> and because they're going to take these photos, he ends up dressing her like a doll, like he brushes her hair. And then they go and walk out of the house and he holds her hand like he did the night before to make sure she doesn't slip on the damp grass. And they hike up to a meadow and he has a camera around his neck and a gun in his waistband. And he poses her in front of the mountains and he just takes pictures of her. Ugh, can you imagine this like totally freaky deaky photo shoot happening? 
And what is? I hope and he's not the, telling like, her to smile. The, the, I mean, oh my God, can, can you, you imagine? imagine? Of course he is. Of course he is. But like the stress of that, of like he could kill me at any moment. I'm in a remote location with him. And then after taking photos, he just invites her to walk back to the house with him. Ugh, I have a very morbid curiosity to see those photos. I do not understand what's going on at all. I don't think Hope does either. No. Taylor's obviously completely disturbed. But at the same time, he also speaks and behaves in a rational way. He is making sense. Um, well, I think that, like, the the what we saw of him the night we met him right, in mm-hmm. Hope's mind, she sees flashes of that guy who was charming mm-hmm. and magnetic. So it's like, I think that oscillating between fear and this, like, charming guy is, like, making it all the more confusing. And she's slowly piecing together her behavior with his reaction. And she's learning that when she experiences fear or pain or anything like that, he turns into that monster that killed Bill, that raped her. But when she's calm and happy and goes with the flow, that's when she sees this charming, quote, nice guy that doesn't scare her. Yeah, the main thing on her mind at this point must just be her kids Mm -hmm. now that she knows they're in danger. And if her ex-husband has put out this hit on them, she needs to get somewhere safe, but so do they. So trying to keep Taylor in this uh, calm, nice guy vibe, she enlists him to help her. So the two of them are driving back to Beverly Hills to go to her home to see her children. And on the car ride there, Taylor tells her that she's not allowed to go to the police, which, by the way, seems obvious in that moment. But he's referring to that she can't go to the police to tell them about Bill's body until he has time to, quote, fix it. Because if she does, the organization that he works for will come after her and her kids, putting her in danger, and they will all be killed. So until then, Taylor promises to just stay by her side to get this, protect them. Mm, Why does that not make me feel that much better? Hope wants to take her kids to stay with her parents, And if they're going to do that, she and Taylor are going to have to talk to her parents, so they better get their story straight. She tells him right away, look, I'm not a good liar. This has to be something very close to the truth if you want me to say it. And it is a long drive from the Sierra Nevadas to Beverly Hills, and in that time, they come up together with a story they can agree on. So here's the story that they've agreed on. Hope and Bill... We're just hanging out at the ranch house on Saturday. That night, after the two of them went to bed, an intruder broke in, killed Bill, and tied up Hope. The next day, Taylor arrives to take pictures of Bill for his report, but instead, he finds the scene of the massacre. So he unties Hope, and then they drive back to Los Angeles to get her kids. And listen, I am not a good liar, so a Good idea to lie is to weave it close to the truth. But my God, this story has so many holes and I have so many questions. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems, sure, okay, it's uh, you know, it's plausible enough. Um, but what's Hope's end game here in going along with this? Is I can't tell if she's just like biding her time at this point. What is her plan? Maybe, maybe she does really think, though, this is a good idea to tell this lie. Not that she's just going along with it, but that it is a good choice because it will hopefully keep her and her kids out of danger from the greater danger, which is the organization, yeah. not Taylor. Totally. She believes that Tom Masters, her ex, her soon-to-be ex-husband, has hired the organization to kill her and her two kids. But... And the car ride, she just keeps talking. Like we said, she's a compulsive talker. And she talks about how Bill had a vasectomy and how she isn't on birth control. Almost like she's using the potential that maybe she might be pregnant from Taylor. What I think is that she out loud says it because she's actually worried and thinks he'll be worried along with her Mm -hmm. and then is surprised when she sees that he is happy about it. And I think to hope she goes, oh, This guy doesn't just want to help me out of this situation. He wants to be with me. He Mm. wants to become 
my lover. He wants to maybe become my husband, which has to just make her ill. But the more she treats him like a husband, as you said, the nicer he's going to be back. So she's got to keep playing along. And in order to survive, it's like she has to do all this emotional labor, building him up, convincing him that she loves him, that she's there for him. It's like, my God, like, go on a dating app. Go to freaking therapy. Like, you have to murder someone to find a partner who then has to lie to herself in order to survive? My God. I just, like, have a hot tip. Therapy is cheaper, and frankly, it's legal. Yes, but Carrie, what would the jackal do? Would the jackal go to therapy? I don't think so. After this, what must feel like a very long drive, especially to Hope, they arrive at her house where the housekeeper tells Hope that her youngest child, the one she has with Tom, KC, was picked up by Tom on Sunday. And in Hope's mind... This just lends credence to Taylor's story because Tom never picks up Casey on Sunday. So wait a minute. Maybe he did want her and her two older children dead. And adding even more credibility to the story that Taylor is telling her is that Taylor tells Hope that Casey will be brought back that evening because he and Tom have a call with the organization. And Taylor is right. Tom does bring Casey back that evening. So she's convinced that he's telling the truth about everything else. So she hides in the bathroom when Tom enters the house because she doesn't want Tom to know that she's still alive. And now that Hope is really starting to think about it, Taylor had mentioned that Tom wanted this Sharon Tate-style murder scene, and she recalls that Tom had always seemed to have this fascination with the Manson murders. So everything right now is lining up for her. Taylor's telling the truth. And over the next two days, Hope has to tell her kids where Bill is because they know who Bill is. And so she has to tell her kids that, oh, Bill is stuck up at the ranch. He had some car trouble, But Bill's friend Taylor is here to help them out. She's just desperate to get her kids to her parents' house and to tell her mom and her stepdad what's going on. But Taylor tells her it's not going to work. The phones are tapped. The organization is listening. And she watches Taylor have phone calls with the organization. And she can hear on his end him saying that he's on a bad contract. Tom is a psychopath. But it turns out that a new middleman is on the contract. Someone else has picked it up. Someone else is after her. She and her children are still in danger. Taylor does this thing then that he starts to point out people in their life that they pass, and he tells her they're a part of the organization. So, for example, if they pass a gardener on the sidewalk, that person's a part of the organization. He tells her about an agent in a yellow car, and then that afternoon... She sees a yellow car is parked in front of her house. And so it's like everything he's doing is tying her whole life into the story of the organization. It's like a terrible, immersive show that she did not buy tickets for. Right. But the production values, they are uh, impressive. impressive. Yeah. And the consequences are permanent. Hope is sleeping in her bedroom at night, just clutching her kids while Taylor is protecting them. He stands guard outside. And the more time she spends with him, the more convinced she is there is an organization out to get her. And he is the only one that cares, the only one that knows. He's her only hope. And Taylor inserts himself into her life even more. He starts playing with her kids. He's making them all dinner. He whistles while he does the dishes for them. He goes as far as to drive her kids to school by himself and Hope protested this. She didn't want him to do this, but he says, things have to appear normal. Well, I don't know how normal it is to set up a telescopic rifle in your living room, but that is like the next thing he does uh, in order to keep an eye on the neighborhood and in the name of keeping uh, his family safe, right? Nothing says I love you like covert weaponry. Mm. And when Hope realizes that he left the gun out where the kids could get them, she chews him out 
and he apologizes. It's like this weird playhouse thing where she's like, you left the gun out. And he's like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. Won't happen again. But also, like, this is a moment where it kind of switches, right? Where, like, before she just had to be happy so he was placated. And if she was, you know, in pain or angry or anything, that's when he switched. And at this point, she just kind of flies off the handle because he's putting her kids in danger. And he accepts it and becomes remorseful, which is a very different sort of energy he brought to any of their previous interactions. And the line between captor and victim gets more and more blurred. It's less dress for the job you want, but more like murder for the life you want, apparently, because she gives him a back rub when he's in pain. The two of them sit by the fire. They have glasses of wine in their hands. And Taylor tells Hope, I would like to sit here by the fire with you forever. I would be your protector and take care of you and the children forever. And he asks in this conversation, can you ever forgive me for what I've done for Bill's murder? I don't know, for raping you, for that pretty weird photo shoot? And she says, yes, I forgive you. I do forgive you. And that obviously makes him super happy. And then Taylor tells her that he wants to get out of the killing business altogether. He tells Hope... I can go out tomorrow and get a job as an attorney and never harm another person. If I do that, if I stay out of trouble for five years, will you marry me? And for once, our favorite compulsive talker, Hope, is speechless. What comes out of her mouth is, I honestly don't know how I'd feel in five years. I I just don't know. I mean... I can imagine if the last three days has been any indication of the emotional roller coaster, five years would be pretty hard to determine. Yeah. Uh, well, that night after this conversation, Hope sleeps in Taylor's arms, and it is perhaps the happiest he's ever been. And Hope is still terrified. When Hope wakes up the next morning, she insists to Taylor that it's time to bring the kids to her parents' house. It's been three days, and I think Hope has this sort of newfound confidence because, again, the lines are being blurred and she has a bit more power in the, quote, relationship. Bill's body is still at the ranch house, and they just have to do something. Taylor knows how distressed Hope is, and He's resisted this move for a long time, so he agrees, okay, let's go. Hope wants to bring all the kids to her mom's, but Taylor drives Hope's daughter to school, again, by himself. And after he drops her off, he goes in search of that damn white dress, as though that's high on Hope's list. It's bizarre. He's got to go get it. Um, This guy's really a hopeless romantic. Chivalry's not dead. Bill is. Meanwhile, Hope calls her mother, named Honey, to let her know that she and her friend will be visiting. She warns Honey to lock all of the doors and set the alarm before they arrive. She's bringing the kids, too, for their safety. And without saying much, she gives every indication that things are not right. Hope's relationship with her mom is complicated, to say the least. Her family comes from extreme wealth, and Honey is a socialite of sorts. But even though Hope lives in 90210 Beverly Hills, she lives mostly on alimony and food stamps. She is not well off. Once Taylor returns that morning, he and Hope take the kids down the hill to her mom's house. And again, he reminds her how risky this is. If Hope veers from the story they've come up with, Everyone will be killed. Honey opens the door and she sees her daughter and she is shocked to see the dark circles under Hope's eyes. She looks like she's been through literal hell. And Taylor assures Honey that she has been through hell. What Honey doesn't know is that Hope has brought the lion into the den At that exact moment, Taylor has a gun hidden in his waistband, and Hope is standing there just hoping to keep everyone safe. 
She's thinking about that gun, though, man. She's thinking about it when they walk into the house and when they go sit down on her mom's lemon velvet couch. And then she begins to recount to her mother exactly what happened at their family ranch house, exactly the story that Taylor has instructed her to tell. Bill Ashlock is dead. Late Saturday night, an intruder broke in to kill him, tied Hope up with tape, and luckily for them all, Taylor arrived the next morning and rescued Hope. He moved Bill's body and he brought Hope home to protect the kids. He is a hero. Honey hears this story and she can't really believe what she's hearing. So she asks Taylor, why didn't you drive straight to the police station? And he tells her about Hope's ex-husband, Tom, and the hitman. Of course, omitting that he is the hitman. But worst of all, the contract for her murder is still open. Honey has questions right away. She's asking Hope, well, why didn't you hear Bill get shot? And Taylor explains to her, well, this man probably used a silencer and snuck in, just like the book, The Day of the Jackal. Have you read it? And she actually weirdly has. She just finished it on vacation. It was about a man who changes identities and is able to insert himself into people's lives seamlessly. Taylor then tells Honey that the killer himself called Hope once they got home to Beverly Hills. He said if she notified the police before he said she could, he would kill her and her children and... Taylor pauses if if it hurts him to say the next part. He looks into Honey's eyes. You and your husband, too. He asks Honey if she's noticed anyone suspicious in the neighborhood. And come to think of it, she has. He tells her that with all the windows in this house, there isn't a room where you couldn't be shot. He tells Honey there could be a telescopic rifle across the street, just waiting for word to kill them all. There could be a bomb under the house. And Honey is processing this information, and she is at a loss for words. She just can't quite wrap her head around this information. She asks, when you got back to Los Angeles and got the children safely together, why didn't you go to the police then? And Taylor deflects again seamlessly. You know, this killer has been very clever. He has arranged to have one child away from Hope at all times so she couldn't contact the police. As a matter of fact, one child isn't there with them. Hope's daughter is at school. Hope's stepfather, Van, arrives home from his office later in the day. And when he hears the story of what has happened... This guy will be damned if he's not going to call the police. He is no (laughs) nonsense. Thank God. Yeah, finally, right? We need you, Van. He goes straight for the phone and Hope lunges at him. She's using her whole body to keep him from making this call, screaming, you're not just risking your own life. You're condemning my children and they haven't even had a chance to live. According to Taylor... All of the phones have been tapped, but Van refuses to give in. Honey is weeping on the living room floor. Hope is screaming. And finally, Taylor stands up and says, I'll call the police, but not here. He says he's going to go to the Beverly Hills Hotel to make the call. That way, the organization won't be able to listen in. Taylor leaves, disappears out of the door with a smile and a wave. And Hope is terrified for her life, so she's going to draft her will right then and there while her stepfather lays out all his guns in the living room. And within an hour of Taylor leaving, there is a knock at the door. Hope is, again, fearful for her life. She answers it with a gun drawn. She doesn't trust anybody. And there's two plainclothes officers that enter the house, and she tells them, if they are with the organization, just shoot me now, but spare my parents. Hope has also had a bit to drink. Can you imagine how confused these officers must be? Oh, my God. They walk into this scene. I mean, the police are able to eventually calm her down and tell her that they are not, in fact, the organization there to kill her. But she tells them the same story that Taylor instructed her to say, exactly as she's told Honey and Van But when the police ask her what the assailant looked like, they haven't covered that in the study guide. No, 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 no. They find it really odd that she has 
all of these other details of the incident, but she can't recall anything specific about the man who did it. Yeah, it's pretty weird. They decide, let's bring Hope back to the police station for a little more questioning. And Hope is shocked. Why would they need to do that? As it turns out, within an hour of Taylor Wright's call to the Beverly Hills police, a man claiming to be Hope Master's father called the Porterville police in the Sierra Nevadas. Only a few minutes later, the foreman at the ranch called to report the discovery of a body, the body of Bill Ashlock. When Hope arrives at the Beverly Hills Police Department, the Porterville Sheriff has already called it in, and Hope is arrested under suspicion for the murder of Bill Ashlock. At 10.30 p.m. that Tuesday, Bill Ashlock is pronounced dead by authorities. But strangely, at nearly the exact same time, William T. Ashlock's name is signed on a credit card slip at the Avis Rent-A-Car at the Los Angeles airport. And the man claiming to be Bill drives away in a white Chevy Impala. Over the next two nights, Hope is locked at the Beverly Hills Jail. She is being held on a $50,000 bond, and she's forced to scrub the toilet in her cell. It is not a party in there because she is struggling to sleep because her neighbor in the neighboring cell is wailing from drug withdrawals. But it's not even that that's keeping her up. It's the thoughts of the organization out to get her that is keeping her wide awake and full of fear. She also goes to get uh, a medical examination and they find residue on her that is consistent with tape. And that's on her wrists and ankles. But they also tell her they don't see any signs of rape. Which I just have to interrupt this story to tell you that we are in the 70s here. And however bad we currently are at determining sexual assault, it was probably even worse back then. Multiply by 70. It was 70 times worse for the 70s. I'm going to say to the 70th power, you know. Honey and Van then collect enough money to pay Hope's bail so that she can finally come home and be with her children. Then they hire two lawyers, Ned Nelson and Tom Breslin, to represent Hope. And in addition, they hire a private investigator named Jean Tinch to investigate. It's unthinkable to them that Hope would have anything at all to do with Bill's murder. But the story that she's laid out is strange. The hitman, the organization, the inconsistencies in her story, something just isn't adding up. When Taylor calls Honey, she's actually really relieved to hear from him. He's the only person that can help set her free. And Taylor tells her he's just met with his lawyers and given them a deposition that he thinks might help. Honey wants him to meet with the investigators, their lawyers, and the P.I. to convince them that Hope isn't a murderer. But Taylor can't help. He says he has to keep his distance, and he assures Honey that this is the best way to save Hope. Meanwhile, Hope is not doing well. She has so much anxiety, she's medicating herself for it. But even the medication is not enough to ease the stress of a hitman outside her window or a bomb under her parents' house or the telescopic rifle that may have its sights set on her right now. She's fully bought into Taylor's story. And her days are full of chaos and commotion and tensions between her and her mother are sky high. Yeah, it probably doesn't help that her arrest is really making the news. Headlines like Socialite Faces Murder Charge, Victim Identified in the Visalia Times Delta, and Socialite Denies Guilt in Slain in the Fresno Bee. And since then, the phone is just ringing nonstop. Believe it or not, well-wishers have been sending her parents flowers, consoling them for what they must be going through. Because I guess, you know, having your daughter suspected of murder is really no picnic. But Taylor seems intent on fixing everything. He and Hope talk on the phone, and she convinces him to explain everything to their P.I. Gene Tinch. And Taylor does. He tells Tinch about the contract put out for Hope's murder and the alleged hitman who's recently been found dead in a hotel. Taylor promises to send Tinch a cassette tape in the mail 
for the full story. More will become clear once he listens to it. After this call, Gene checks up on Taylor's hitman story and actually finds it credible because there was a man killed in a hotel on Sunset Boulevard. So maybe that was the alleged hitman. Maybe this Taylor Wright is who he says. Could be FBI, could be CIA, but something is still amiss. Taylor's hiding things. So this tape arrives by messenger, and Van immediately calls their whole legal team over to the house. Attorneys Tom Breslin and Ned Nelson and the private eye, Gene Tinch, they sit around the cassette player, they put in the tape, and everyone but the children sit around with the speakers waiting to hear what Taylor has to say, what evidence this tape will provide. And in it, he speaks directly to Hope. I do not want any member of your family listening in. I do not want any of your lawyers to listen in. So then they turn it off, right, Quinn? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say they really, they, they really want to hear what's on this day. Really um, it. It's also like it's a bit late for that now. Everyone's got their marshmallows. Yeah, so like they've set time. up. There's popcorn. It's a whole thing. Taylor continues on the tape. I will stick by you to the bitter end and I will get you out of this mess. I will not leave the country. I will not leave the area until I know that all the charges against you have been dropped. I have kept track of the kids. I know they're staying home from school. I'm not far away, dear. I'm going to stay close. I'll see you out of this one. Mr. Fix-It will get you through. And I found a stunning white dress, size three. And Taylor goes on and on and on with personal anecdotes before getting to the real meat of the story. He didn't really have anyone editing the script, to be honest. Well, Carrie, would the jackal use an editor? Quinn, even jackals need editors. (laughs) He then reads a signed affidavit aloud outlining the exact story of what happened at the ranch. Well, the fake story that he and Hope came up with. And he retells the story he told P.I. Tinch about the hitman found dead at the hotel, and the hitman didn't finish the job, so he was eliminated by the organization. Taylor says he's willing to answer any and all questions, just as long as the interview takes place outside the United States. Then he speaks directly to Hope again. I have no desire for the authorities to know my identity. I have no desire for a number of things, but before I would see you separated from your children, I would do that for you. I don't know why I would do it for you. I mean, I don't owe you a damn thing. Yeah, besides, you're so ugly. Mm, Don't like you a bit, right? No, can't stand anybody who won't kiss before they brush their teeth. Yeah. See, aren't you glad you didn't let anybody listen to this tape? When the tape clicks off, the room is silent. How awkward. So awkward. Oh, you so can cut awkward. the tension with a knife. Like, Ugh. who's the first one to speak? I mean, so attorney Tom Breslin thinks to himself that the tape is perhaps the most evil thing he's ever heard. He can't put his finger on it, but there's just something bad about this guy, Taylor Wright. And P.I. Gene Tinch agrees. Okay, so we're all agreed, folks. Taylor's bad news. So then... After all this time, why can't Hope bring herself to tell the truth? Why is she withholding information from them? Why is she still lying for this man who is very clearly manipulating her and taking advantage of her weaknesses to make himself an indispensable person in her life? She is safely away from him now, but she is still afraid. Of course she's afraid. In the tape, he talks about how he's watching her children. He even recounts how he knows They're not going to school. And he's watching her. I mean, maybe not always, but enough that it feels like he is. A telescopic rifle could be trained on her right now. The trigger for a bomb could be right under his thumb. And if she speaks now, if she betrays Taylor's trust, that could be the end of them all. But little do any of them know, Taylor Wright isn't at all who he says he is. The next morning, Tom Breslin receives a sudden call from the FBI. 
And within the hour, the lawyers, FBI agents, and Hope's family are all assembled in Honey's living room, sitting on that really cute 70s lemon velvet couch with a mugshot in hand. They ask Hope if she recognizes the man as Taylor Wright. The mugshot is of a rumpled, long-haired man with wire-rimmed glasses, But Hope sees the handsome, tanned man with the carved pipe and a hand in his pocket that she met just five days before. Instantly, she knows that it's him, but she doesn't say a word. Because here's the thing. She made a promise. And the promise is the only thing that she knows for certain has kept her alive. She remembers sitting in that dark bedroom at the ranch house with this man standing over her saying, I can't leave you alive. You could identify me. And she said, I would never identify you. And when he pressed, I don't know if I can trust you, she promised you can trust me. So Hope doesn't want to betray Taylor. She's still convinced of the control he has over her fate. But she also knows that her parents are sitting right there, and they've also met him. And if she doesn't identify him, they will. So when the FBI agents ask her if she recognizes the person in the mugshot, she says yes. But they tell her the man in the picture isn't Taylor Wright. He's a fugitive, and his name is G. Daniel Walker. Next time on Crime of a Lifetime. Jean Daniel Walker is on the run from police, not for the murder of Bill Ashlock. Not yet. He's a prisoner on the run from the FBI, a fugitive who takes the names of every man he meets. He's always one step ahead of everyone, the kind of man who even strangers can't lie to, and who only leaves a trail of dust for police to follow. Walker is far more than meets the eye, and this game of cat and mouse, or should I say jackal and mouse, that he seems to relish, will continue right up until the very end. And that's continued next time on Crime of a Lifetime. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the book A Death in California by Joan Barthel and an article in the New York Times titled The Case of the Lady and the Killer. We highly recommend you check out these sources if you'd like to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.